Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. This is Dr. Simon. Uh, I am doing my show from, uh, let's see, the sun did come out in sunny Florida. And um, I have a guest, uh, a young man by the name of Scott McClain, who somehow in his life got involved in the uh, work of Thomas Zoss. Uh, and people who have been following my show know I talk about Zoss from time to time. He was very influential in my thinking. He wrote a book called The Myth of Mental Illness uh, and um, uh, caused a furor. I mean, he was attacked. Uh, he was picked up and by his ankles and thrown around the room. Uh, he was called crazy. I mean, really, really vicious stuff. Because what Zoss uh, uh, said, basically, is that what we call mental illnesses are not mental illnesses. They're something else. Uh, and Scott uh, is a, uh, lives in Spain. I'm talking to him now. What time is it there in, in Spain? Five hours later than me? Nine o'clock something? Uh, it's uh, six hours later. It's 10 p.m. here. 10 o'clock. Uh, so he's, he's staying up late. <laughs> to talk to me and you today. Um, he's been tell, well, tell me a little bit about how you end up in Spain. Um, well, it's kind of a long story, but uh, basically I finished my degree at University of Michigan, and mm -hmm. I wasn't really sure if I wanted to go directly to law school, so I decided to move to Spain, teach English, play music, Kind of enough. and then one year turned into another year. The following year, I got a master's degree, and I pretty much have been here ever since. What's what's your master's degree in? Uh, translation, legal translation from English. Legal to translation. So you sort of went into the law, a, a, a kind uh, of sort oblique. Of, yeah. yeah. And so, are you planning to spend your life in Spain? Yes, uh, sort of. It was, um, yeah, the master's was partly to extend my visa, but partly to, you know, bolster my CV while I was here. Okay. You know, let, me, let me get a quick uptake. How are you doing there, and how is the country doing right now with the, with the pandemic, with the coronavirus pandemic? Oof. Well, um, the entire down since uh, March 15th, it's going to be uh, exactly one month in two days. And the state of alarm was just extended to May 10th. Uh, and I've been confined to my house ever since then. Wow. So if, there are any, if there's any uh, shakiness in the Internet, uh, that's probably the reason why. Why? Uh, basically because everyone is using Internet so oh. much more than they normally do. And there's a shortage oh, I, of technicians, so. Oh, it's an overload. Uh, yeah, I've yeah. been in my house now. This is three weeks. Uh, oh. But I have my wife here, and uh, so I'm not alone in the room. Are you alone? I know, actually. I have a roommate, and uh, <clears throat> I actually just moved in with a roommate two months ago. Okay. Are you getting along? Because, because I would have no company.
Hello. So Scott, you know. Yes. I, I, I talking to the phone. I'm having trouble hearing you again. Uh, uh, no, yeah, we get along very, very well. Um, the house Otherwise, is really big. Oh, okay, that's great. Um, and are you able to get out and exercise a little? Uh, I do exercise at home. I, uh, okay. you know, I do. I have a routine every morning. Um, I can't really get uh, cardio um, that much, but you know, I do what I can. And how do you get food? Uh, the supermarkets are open. The essential services are open. And fortunately, there's a grocery store right next to my house. Um, and the supplies have been well stocked. There hasn't been any shortage or anything like that. Okay. So basically every two weeks I go out and I buy, you know, all the groceries I need for two weeks. And, right. Um, all right. And I'm pretty sad. So you'll stay safe. Now tell me about your link with um, Thomas Zaz. Okay, well, I first heard of Thomas Zaz uh, about 10 or 11 years ago from economist Brian Kaplan's, either his blog or his Wikipedia article. Um, and I remember when I first read Thomas Zaz's Wikipedia article, the first paragraph, it said he's famous for his thesis that mental illness is a myth. And that just, you know, hit me like a ton of bricks because I thought to myself, that's like saying gravity is a myth. That's something that you hear about all the time. That's something that all of the experts and, uh, and authorities in society just take for granted. Um, and I thought, Brian Kaplan is no fool, so who is this guy? And I started to read a little bit more about Zaza's thesis. Um, and when I understood what it was that he actually meant... Um, I began to sympathize with some of his ideas, like the idea that uh, homosexuality is not a mental illness, or that um, you know people in the 50s and 60s were uh, unjustly and voluntarily confined. But um, the idea that things like depression and anxiety, primarily medical problems, was something that I found very, very, very hard to accept. Um, but I realized that the reason was more emotional than scientific or logical. And basically, Thomas Oz was just kind of there in the back of my mind over the years. And I kind of put those issues on the back burner. And the longer I went through life and the more life experiences I had to both the... Uh, the wonderful moments in life and the tragedies, uh, I started to read some of his books, uh, not limited to, but starting with the myth of mental illness. Uh, and then I really understood what he meant, which was basically that these problems like anxiety, depression, um, panic, um, despair, these are very real problems but they don't belong in the category of medicine, but rather in the category of experience or human affairs. Now, um, why don't they, what does he argue? Go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. So, yeah, one, once I really, really understood it, um, once I really understood the thesis, it's like, um, 
I don't know. It's like it's like learning that the uh, Earth revolves around the sun and not vice versa. You know, everything else. Yes, just and you know how much trouble it was. It's a better explanation. Yeah, and you remember how much trouble from history it was when people said it was the Earth revolving around the sun rather than the entire universe revolving around the Earth. Um, exactly. Galileo, uh, uh, who said such a thing, uh, was, uh, he wasn't sent to, to hell. He was sent to purgatory uh, and, mm. uh, in the 1500s. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until the 19, uh, 1980s, 70s, mm. that a mass was said for him so that he can go from purgatory to heaven. <laughs> so, so that it's a radical, and for most people, it is a totally, totally radical idea. Mm. Um, what else holds your attention to Zas? Um, so many things, but I think my biggest, uh, I would say my most um, important realization about Zaz and about the myth of mental illness is that when you're not convinced by his arguments, which usually means that you don't understand them because you haven't read them properly, um, emotionally, you know, you don't want to believe them because you grow up in a society which is based on the idea of mental illness. All experts in our society, not just in the United States or in Spain, but in, in all of the West, pretty much all of modern society, take for granted that mental illness is just like regular illness and it's just a chemical imbalance or whatever. And to have that cloth, so to speak, you know, torn away from you, uh, it's, it's very unsettling because you realize that even though you're right, you're in a very, very small minority of people uh, and furthermore, um, it's very dangerous to be right. I mean, you, um, I found myself on the complete other side. I tried to share these ideas with people, and it makes them very, very, very upset. I remember at the company dinner, I was talking this year for Christmas, I was talking to a coworker about Zaz for like two hours, and, you know, she got really worked up about it. And, you know, I, I've gotten to a point where I can you know, speak relatively dispassionately about it. But, you know, that was just the moment for me when I realized it, it's so impossible for the vast majority of people to talk about these things in the abstract because yes. everybody or at least everyone that, or at least somebody that everybody knows has been affected by what some call mental illness and what Zaz would call problems in living. Yeah, hold on one second. It makes most people very uncomfortable. Yeah. Hold on one second. Jim Gottstein, are you there? I am. How are you? I'm good. Um, You've been listening for a bit? Yeah, a little bit after you started. Uh, So, Scott, let me tell you, Jim Gottstein is an attorney who uh, involved with and just published a terrific book, uh, called the Zyprexa Papers, and it yes. is. I'm sorry, you know about it. I do. Yes. Yeah. So he joined us, and and um, 
Uh, you know, this is a weird thing. I have to hold a second. I have mm-hmm. a delivery of food that was supposed to come tomorrow, and the food is going to be here <laughs> in about five mm-hmm. minutes. So I don't have to hang up or anything uh, because I just have to make sure they leave it outside the door. And, and, so we, we can talk amongst ourselves, I guess. Yeah, uh, we could talk. No, we could sure. continue talking because I don't have to get off the phone. Uh, they're oh, not here okay. yet. It was supposed to come tomorrow. I can't understand uh, why it would come today, but that's okay because my wife and I are running out of food. And um, she bids me to go to the supermarket. And <laughs> so anyway, um, so uh, let me add a couple of ideas to Scott. I really believe, mm-hmm. and I think you read my book. I did. Yes. That uh, it's really a religion. It functions like a religion. Yes. Uh, religion is an organized set of ideas, facts, and moral judgments that are taken on faith. And if you fool around with somebody's religion, you're in trouble. Absolutely. Um, and, and it's deeply believed because there's certain advantages to being mentally ill. As, as Jim is an expert on, because Jim uh, uh, helps those who have been forcibly um, hospitalized and forcibly treated uh, to get their civil rights back and get their, their due. But a lot of people <clears throat> want to be taken off the, the notion of responsibility for their own problems. Mm-hmm. And if you're mentally ill or, or claim to be mentally ill, then it's, you know, have a, a brain tumor, nobody's going to hold you really responsible for action. Or if you have a, a cancer in your stomach, mm-hmm. nobody's going to say to you, eat your food anyway. You're off the hook, if you will. And so these mm-hmm. religions uh, provide something. Uh, if you're a good person, and according to the religion, and they tell you that when you die, you're going to heaven. Anybody who messes around with that belief is really messing around with something that's central to how you live your life and what the reasons are that you live your life that way. And so it's I, very, very difficult to... to can I expand uh, on that point a little bit? Please. Yes, because I wanted to bring up um, some points from your book about what you were just saying. Uh, which really resonated with me. The first one was that um, uh, I have I have it I have the page written down here somewhere. But the effect the the thrust of it was that religion is really properly defined uh, the study of the way one should live one's life. And I think that's the best definition that one can offer of religion because it's a normative enterprise as opposed to the material sciences, which are a positive enterprise, which right. explain the way the world is, as opposed to how one should act. Um, and, you know, as you say, psychiatry, institutional psychiatry, is um, basically moral nor- normative judgments, which, uh, which are cloaked in the veil of medical, of medical diagnoses. So Absolutely. it's basically religion, which is descri- disguised as science, 
And the other point that you made multiple times in your book that, uh, you know, it's uh, I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't be in more agreement with, is that, um, you know, as moral creatures we have to make judgments and we have to make moral evaluations, and that really hit the nail on the head because one of the things that you hear so much in our culture is people saying. Don't be judge, don't judge, or don't be judgmental. That's what people usually say, and I think some people what they mean by that is don't be sanctimonious and self righteous. But if what they mean by that is don't make moral judgments, I mean that's impossible. We're human beings; we have to make moral judgments. You know, it's as if yes. you uh, you see somebody who is very is acting very irresponsibly. And in your heart, you think, wow, that person really should get his act together. Uh, is it really someone else's prerogative to tell you, hey, don't judge? You have to. That's, that's how human beings are. We, we live in judgments, right? And I think in our uh, relativistic and pluralistic culture, um, we often lose sight of that. And that in and of itself is what leaves people very vulnerable to things like institutional psychiatry, which are really value judgments disguised as positive scientific uh, evaluations or diagnoses. And that's what makes it so hard to argue with, because it's one thing if somebody tells you should or shouldn't do, you could say, why should I shouldn't do it? But this... Hmm. Uh, this is, is a whole other story. This is now dressed up with the authority of medicine, right? Yeah, so that's what my co-worker kept saying. She said, she said, she said uh, this is science. Uh, you never studied psychiatry because this is science. Did you go to medical school? And, of course, you know, who can I, if you put anything in the same category as physics and chemistry, you know, the hard sciences, who can argue with science? Right? Yeah. That's how they get away with it. And get away with it well. Jim, you want to add anything here? Well, no, I I certainly uh, you know agree with all of that. Um, it's you know I mean in a lot of ways uh, psychiatry took over from religion in dealing with people who you know behave in ways that are unacceptable and get now get diagnosed as uh, mental illness. You know they used to be. Uh, um, you know, have uh, be visited by evil spirits and all that kind of stuff and demons and mm-hmm. you know now now they're visit you know now if we have defect people have you know defective brains when that's you know never never been mm-hmm. proven so um, yeah. yeah I I I agree with you I mean I um, yeah no uh, I agree yeah. can I ask can I ask you a question. Who, me or Jim? Uh, Jim. Sure. Go ahead. Okay, so, um, so you know, I've uh, I've talked to a lot of people about you know um, mental illness and mental health and institutional psychiatry in the past year, and uh, you know, as you as you know from experience, I'm sure the uh, reaction is usually a knee-jerk negative one or dismissive, but. Um, some of the more sophisticated um, 
counter arguments, I guess you could say, is when somebody will say something like, well, um, you know, uh, it's true that um, in the past there were some physical illnesses and diseases that um, could not be identified, um, such as, for example, uh, neurosyphilis. Um, you know, before antibiotics, it was difficult to know, um, you know, why people went uh, crazy because of neurosyphilis or not. Um, but um, certainly nowadays with modern, I mean, not many people have neurosyphilis anymore, but, um, you know, we would say that somebody who's suffering from a bona fide brain disease like uh, a brain tumor or neurosyphilis uh, were justified in holding that person to different standards than a healthy person. Um, so who's to say that uh, many of the very, very abnormal behaviors now are simply undiscovered brain diseases and that even though our science is incomplete, we are not, um, we are justified given our incomplete knowledge in holding that person to different standards. Ah. Now, I have my own answer to that, but I was wondering what your answer is. Yes, go ahead. I'll answer it. You want me to answer first, or are you going to answer Yeah, no, you go first, Jim. It's okay. Yeah. Um, well, first, I, it's interesting that you talk about uh, what neurosyphilis. I mean, I think crepolins, uh there's pretty good evidence that Crepillin's dementia, pre, you know, precox or precox, whatever we call it, was that's really mm-hmm. what it was. But um, precox, yeah. You know, my first my first response is, well, there are a couple of res- initial responses. One is that um, they've been looking for over a hundred years and haven't found anything. Uh, and then all of, all of these, you know, and maybe they will, but probably not. Uh, first off, because you know, the diagnostic categories are just don't make any sense, you know, and don't actually, you know, distinguish anything from, you know, lots of other things. Um, and the, you know, the other is that even if that were true, that's no, you know, that doesn't justify, you know, giving people uh, toxic chemicals that are, you know, that, you know, basically don't work, especially mm-hmm. against their will. Um Yeah. And I totally agree with Larry that this, you know, that this diagnosing really gives, can give people a pass on taking responsibility for their behavior. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, the short answer is it's almost certainly not true. And, And if they find something, you know, then it's neurology, not psychiatry. And now you get to the point with Scott and Jim, when somebody says to you, we still don't have the true medical problem that causes mental illness, you have to stop and then ask them. If it is the same as syphilis, which started out being called madness before they used mental illness, it was madness. It then became mm-hmm. the province of medical doctors and it became a medical illness. You have to say to them, and this is what you know, it took me a long time, and, I, and especially a lot of the people in, in the organization I belong to, which is a terrific organization, uh, ISEPP. If you go to ISEPP.org, mm. you'll find a lot of friends there. 
the argument that they give is no evidence for a medical problem. But the answer to that is if there's no, if there really is a medical problem, then stop calling it mental illness. It's a regular medical problem. It's an illness. You can't have a mental illness, a piece of behavior by itself, unless it's caused by a medical problem. And medical problems can cause behavior that's unwanted and troubled and troubling. Then it has to be called a medical illness. It can't be called a mental illness. And Ask, can I say something? Please. So I'm sorry for interrupting. I thought you, you were uh, done. But, um, and the other thing is that, pretty, you know, most everything that gets labeled as mental illness is explainable by, you know, people's experience. So what's happened to them, and, you know, their um, right. rea- reactions to it or adaption, you know, adaptations uh, mm-hmm. that may have made sense at one point and now or, you know, you know, create problems. So, I mean, it's, it's not only that they haven't found anything, it's that there's an alternate explanation that works in, you know, maybe the vast majority of cases. Yes. Right, and the key the key phrase you said is um, is that it, it makes sense, right? And this this is another thing that this is something that I think is very obvious to anyone if they think a little bit about it. But the conclusions are so difficult to accept in our society that people just kind of shut it off and don't think about it. Um, you know. Every, the only person who really knows an individual is that person because yeah. no one else has lived their life, has all their experiences, uh, is thinking their thoughts. Um, it's impossible. And so even things that seem completely unexplainable to other people, um, I'm sure all of us at some point in our life have, have introspected and realized that there is something about me or the way I feel or the things that I do that the only person on this planet who understands why is me because I haven't explained it to anybody and the explanation would be incredibly complex and the only way you could possibly know it is having lived my life. That's why we read books. That's why we watch movies. We understand people's uh, fictional characters' strange behaviors because we've invested time in reading the chapters and in seeing all the scenes that chronicle their lives, you know? Scott. Um, and so the idea I that some expert can know your problems is hubris. Scott, there's some yeah. scratching sound going on. Is that coming from you? I can hear it too, I just, but I don't think it's coming from me. Okay. It must be the overloaded network. Uh, uh, that we had. Okay, it really won't interfere. Uh, I just wanted to make sure because now it's stopped. Um, oh, okay. Okay. Let me let me throw in a couple of ideas. You see, th- there's a lot of power <laughs> to uh, what you're saying. Nobody really knows what another what it feels truly feels like, except Mr. Spock from Star Wars, because <laughs> exactly. he could do the Vulcan mind mill. Star Trek. Yeah. 
Yes, he could do Star Trek. He could do that. He, he put a finger on your head and one on your nose, and he knew exactly what it felt like to be you. But exactly. when you take a story, I mean, and I, I, I did therapy for 50 years. I was trained to believe, and I really did believe, that people who were labeled schizophrenic uh, had a, a disease of some type. There was something wrong with them. Until I actually began to work with people who were labeled that, and then I discovered that they had gone through something in almost every case that was horrific. Right. Um, people come back from war. I wrote in my, in my book, the fellow I worked yeah. with for a couple of years who had diagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder. And he yeah. tells this horrendous story of murder, of, 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 of killing people in mass on, on, a, on a, these helicopter gunships where his, he kept mm -hmm. talking about how you'd spray down bullets on a village and the men, the women, the children, the animals all became a kind of red paste. Right? Yeah. My question then is, what's the normal mentally healthy response to that? And the answer is, stop killing people. But now you enter into a very big part of human life, which is war and violence and the politics and the politicians who establish the reasons for the war, the leaders of the tribe and the human beings who feel wonderful to go and kill the enemies of the tribe. This is built into us. Right? And so when you start to questioning mental illness and the word schizophrenia or the word craziness, you're now touching on the fact that if I listen to the actual story of that person's life, I won't feel what it felt like to be them, but if I put myself in their shoes, if I empathize with it, I now understand mm -hmm. something and I can ask the question. This was the, wasn't this the best they can do under those circumstances? How dare I judge them for how they handle with a, a, being abused as a child? How dare I judge them without understanding what it felt like to live with an alcoholic parent who, who attacked them and beat the shit out of them all the time and, and the feelings of helplessness that went along with them? Now, I don't have to accept their behavior. I don't have to say, you're off the hook. I can now try to get them to live in a different way and re-experience that event from the point of view of a safe place where they're not being judged and they're not being hit and they're not being attacked. And that, to me, is what a good psychotherapy does that really can help somebody. But it's so much Absolutely. easier to throw a label on it that denies the events that made them the way they are. I'm finished. Go ahead. And if you can, and, and if you think about it, what is a more effective way of guaranteeing that another human being is completely impotent and broken for the rest of his life than telling him that everything that happens to him or that he feels or that he experiences is beyond his control because of a physical illness and in order for him to be able to deal with it, he needs to take this 
quote unquote medicine for the rest of his life, and he needs. And by to the way, come it's not medicine; it's drugs. It's drugs, exactly. It's drugs. That's all it yeah, is. That's why I put them in quotes. Yeah, and and you know, think if you think about it, and I should say, like I I don't, um, I'm not referring to individual psychiatrists as individual human beings. I know many, and most of them are good people, but the institution itself, um, you know, it, it's uh, it's good for business. Like you know, if, you, if I can guarantee that this person is completely dependent on me and on the pharmaceutical industry for the rest of his life. Hey, it's good for me. It's yes. good for business. But yeah. uh, it's terrible for this person as a human being. It's terrible for his dignity and his autonomy. Yes. But you see, it's good for business. And, and what happens yeah. is that I know a lot of really good psychologists who dare not question this publicly. They, by the way, they understand yeah. what we're talking about. Right? They know yeah. this is all bullshit. But I continued diagnosing people until I retired a year and a half ago because I had a choice. You have to. If I didn't do it, I didn't get paid, and I would be attacked in such a way uh, as not be able to earn a living in my field. Uh, you know, when they came after Zask, to go back to Zask for a minute, um, he, had, mm-hmm. he was teaching at Upstate Medical School, uh, medical college, mm-hmm. the university up there, and they went after his job, and they got it. They got him fired. They said he was too disturbed to be interacting with students. Um, and there was only one person in the entire faculty who uh, stood up for him, and that was, you know, am I so bad with names? I, I, I know it. It's there. He wrote The Denial of Death, Ernst Becker, mm-hmm. who at the Time, Ernst Becker was uh, dealing with a serious cancer, uh, and, and uh, or just thereafter, and Ernst Becker stood up and fought for him to keep his his uh, tenured line. They revoked his tenure and fired him. They went after his license, but they never got the license. Okay, right. And to me, what's fascinating about Zas's book is that when I talk to people about it. They know about the book, but they treat it in the metaphor I use. It's like a toxic waste dump. You know it's there, yeah. but you stay far away. <laughs> you don't go into the dump and look. Because once you really read this stuff and you have the epiphany that you had and the epiphany that I had, you have to find some way of dealing with that issue that I'm calling people mm-hmm. bad names. And I have to protect them from the bad name somehow if I'm going to stay in the field. Right. Eh? And that becomes a real... Go ahead, I'm sorry. If you want to help... If you want to... Have have either of you read Zaza's book, The Ethics of Psychoanalysis? That one I haven't read, but I'll tell you what, when I hang up, I'm going to order it. It's amazing. It's one of his best books. I well, I mean, I've only read 13 of them so far, but one of the That's best all. ones that I've read. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, he, uh, he points out that um, in that book, he says that, you know, Freud, I mean, Zaz's view of Freud is very, uh, people think that he was, uh, he was trying to demonize Freud, he was anti-Freud, but his, his view of Freud was very mixed. He said that Freud's 
goal with psychoanalysis to help the analysand gain autonomy and control over his life is a noble goal. He just went about it the wrong way by fixating on, uh, you know, repressed sexual inhibitions right. and and all that stuff. Um, right. But but the the tool that Freud invented of two human beings talking to each other uh, as equals in an attempt to help the uh, analyze and gain autonomy is a very noble goal, and that's one that draws a lot of. You know, and the the thing is, in our society, if you want to make a living doing that, you know, as you pointed out, it's it's impossible to do that without paying some kind of lip service to the system, because if you don't, you won't be able to make a living from it. Right. You know, it's interesting. One of the things I it's quite a when I finished. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. Just that it's 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 quite a predicament. Yeah, it's a predicament. One of the things that, that when I finished my well, – every time I finished a book, I realized I had another book to write. And, and when I finished this one, and it's really going to probably be the last one, I, I started on a revision of it. And if I ever make some money back from what it cost me, if I recoup my loss on the book, because the self-publishing mm-hmm. was not – it was not cheap, but it was okay. I mean, I'm not mm. complaining about the money. Uh, I'm going to publish a revision, but I have to know there's going to be some kind of market for it. And one of the things I'm dealing with, and I put online, I think Jim may have seen it. When I go online, I say, what words would we use? What words would we use if we stop using doctor-patient or psychotherapy? See, I put everything in quotes, but it doesn't change the right. language. I like the idea because I was trained analytically. Uh, I didn't went, go into a, uh, a psychoanalytic program because at that time I was soured by it. And it was only because of the fact that what was going to be discovered was what, what they wanted you to discover. For Freud, right. it was sexual. For Karen Horney, whose work I love, I think she was wonderful, uh, it was you have dependency issues. Right. And it's, mm-hmm. it, and life has done this to you because if there was anybody who victimized you, it was your mommy and your daddy, which could be true. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot more to it than that. And so yeah. I don't use those words, but they were really good words. Do you know that his, mm-hmm. he had uh, the case of Dora and some of the others mm-hmm. who he said that they were messed up? because they couldn't accept the fact that they wanted the sexual contact with their parent. It was an Mm -hmm. unconscious, inborn wish. They were all sexually abused girls. And one of them, I think it was Dora, Dora Pappenheim was the last name. Again, names float around in my head at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, She became a social worker and she wrote an autobiography. She had been sexually abused by her father. And now she's being convinced by Freud and the people who followed Freud that this is an inborn wish. The boy is born. He wants to kill his father. So you have to have murderous impulses to your father so you can get at your mother sexually. Yeah. Now, there was no evidence for any of this. I suppose it's possible, but there's no real evidence for this. And so what could be a tremendously liberating process ended up being 
another political control system. Absolutely. You're not the victim. You are the predator. The child is the predator (laughs) of the parent. It's just an amazing kind of thing. Because in that era, had Freud actually said that these girls were sexually abused, he would have been run out of town and maybe beaten to death. It it, Um, it becomes a really interesting thing that goes beyond the economics of the situation. Are you still with us, Jim? Jim? Is Jim still there? Yeah, I'm there. I muted my uh, my microphone just in case it was me that was causing that. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm. Go ahead. I'm... So, I mean, one of the things that when you were talking about what words would we use, and you know, patient, doctor, and um, I'm really, I think you know, the language is really important. But one of the things that uh, that came up for me is. Um, kind of the magic that can happen with uh, peer, you know, peer-to-peer interaction. And one of the mm-hmm. principles, one of the principles of that, I mean, of course, you've got the idea that, you know, if you've, you've got a shared experience and you can relate to the person in ways that, you know, someone who doesn't uh, can't, and that can be very powerful. But one of the, the principles that, you know, now are, is getting to be violated with the way that uh, the peer movement has been co-opted is that there's no hierarchy between the, you know, the peer and the person. And I think that's, Hmm. you know, um, one of the things that is a little bit troubling about both the the doctor-patient relationship is it's uh, inherently hierarchical and kind that creates a, a power imbalance. Yeah, but you know what? I, I fool around with that in the book. I ha- if I'm going to charge somebody money to help them, then I really have to know something or be an authority in something that is, is valuable to them, maybe to society. And so I, it has to be a kind of an asymmetry um, it's not that a group of peers really can't help each other if they have a democratic interaction, and they're all honest with one another and sympathetic, because at the core of every therapy, I believe, good therapy, is the relationship. So it has to be authority, uh, uh, to me, as a professional, I'm going to charge a fee, and I think it's legitimate to charge a fee, but I have to charge it because I'm an authority in something, but not be authoritarian. And that's can where I, the can danger lies. Yeah. Can I, yeah. One I, of the things see, that, I, um, I believe that I, 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 you read my book, so you know I believe that what happens in psychotherapy is a form of education. Yeah. I'm a teacher. I'm not a doctor in that relationship, but I can't call myself a teacher because the word is already used. Right. Mm-hmm. And when I, I taught as I taught for for forty some odd years. I had to give grades. I had to, you know, I had to be a gatekeeper in a way which I hated. Fail people. I had to, everybody had to start and stop at the same time and let pet 12 weeks or 15 weeks. All of that was problematic. But I had to stand in front of the classroom and I had to know something to teach them. 
So I was an authority. And my personal struggle has always been when I'm challenged intellectually is not to become authoritarian and, 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 and say bad things to people. That's a separate issue. So if I'm going to sit down in the room with somebody and they're going to say to me, I have a problem, I have to be able to understand something about what the problem is that they don't. And by the way, it doesn't even have to be the truth. It can be a, a, a different point of view that rescues them from what they're trapped in, the ideas and the story that they're trapped in. Because that's what happens. We get trapped at a time of our life, and we think like we did when we were a child, and we have the same emotions towards that situation, and we can't see it from another perspective. But that means I'm an authority, Scott. Yeah. All right. Can I can I expand on well, that I, point a little bit? A friend, and friends are very important, and friends help change your life, but they don't charge you. They don't set up an appointment. They don't set up a situation that is a formal relationship. And I believe that the formal relationship between psychotherapist in quotes, therapy in quotes, and patient in quotes important and useful kind of relationship that is a product of the enlightenment, a product of democracy. It's really a very important and helpful, useful relationship when it goes the way I would like to see it go. But that means that the person you're sitting down there is an authority. Otherwise, what's the point? Can I expand on that point a little bit? Because I think Please. you really hit the nail on I think you really hit the nail on the head there, um, because this is this is another thing which is just this is another thing that is, I think, obvious to everybody once they think about it. But it's very difficult for most people to um, tear down the walls of illusion that uh, society has just directed around this. But um, you know, all of us recognize at some point that we need help from an expert at some point in our lives. That's really, when you go to a doctor, you know, that's, that's really what you're going for. You know, a doctor, you don't go to a doctor because he knows the proper way to live. You go to a doctor because there's something wrong with your, your body, the machine that you inhabit, and he's the mechanic who can fix it. That's basically it. Um, right. When you get into questions on how somebody should live their life, or how to deal with a problem or a conflict, you know, there is no one-size-fits-all expert for that. And this is what no. I think Zaz, which this is what I, I wish more people, if there's one snippet of Zaz that I wish everyone would hear, it's this. Nobody really knows what the proper way to live life is. It, it's so simple, and we all know it's true, but... It's something that modern society tries to refute. Uh, you're feeling sad. You're feeling anxious. Well, uh, it's a medical problem and you need drugs, or um, you need to go to an expert called a psychotherapist who will help you stop feeling sad. Now, that being said, um, I think cognitive therapy can be very useful. It's, you know, it's shown, been shown to be effective. It's kind of like going to the gym to deal with your thoughts, although I think that the great Stoic philosophers like Marcus Aurelius and Seneca uh, already said that thousands of years ago. But, but regardless, um, you know, 
what you're really going to, what you really need if you have deep problems in life, the person you can benefit from most is uh, a human being who can help you get insight into how to live life well. Right. That person is going to be different for everybody depending on who they are, depending on their values, depending on what stage of life they're in, uh, depending right. on their problem. Um, and, um, and I will say that, you know, one thing I always noticed growing up is that a lot of, uh, a lot of psychologists um, are very erudite and learned people, but a lot of them that I know personally and that I've met in my life are not really people who are interested in the big questions in life, in the human condition, who read literature in their free time or anything like that. I really wish that I could have, you know, I would have, I would pay a thousand dollars for an hour of conversation with Thomas Zaz because learning about his life, uh, he was somebody who was genuinely interested in why human beings do what they do, and he lived his right. life that way. I mean, I, right. I'm sure you've read his autobiography. Um, no, I haven't. You know, I only read one book okay. by Zaz. Oh, I, I, I really. I uh, I treasure. I I got to have lunch with him once a few years before. Oh my gosh, what was that like? He was absolutely as advertised, and you know he mm-hmm. never wavered. I was with another person, Ron Thompson. I don't know Larry if you know him, but anyway, um, yeah, he was absolutely true to his beliefs all the time, and um, yeah, it's I really treasure. Uh, Treasure that lunch with him. By the way, um, I interviewed yeah. Zas. If you go into the archive of my show and mm-hmm. go back a few years, because you keep listing down and down and down, I did an interview mm-hmm. with Zas. It was about an mm-hmm. hour, an hour and a half. Um, and at the time, I was uh, I was involved with. Uh, doing the ethical human psychology and psychiatry, um, the, the, uh, the journal. And my co-editor was Lou Wynn, who uh, works, still working. He's way into his 80s now, Lou. And he's still working as a therapist uh, out in, uh, in uh, uh, West, Mexico. New Mexico. And we mm-hmm. interviewed He became, actually visited Zas, became close friends with him in the years before Zas died, and we had a three-way conversation. And I think you would really enjoy that. Um, yes, I, 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 that's how I discovered it. your podcast, actually. Oh, on that particular one? Yeah? Yeah, because... Yeah, by the, the way, the, I want to add something to... You see, I don't think it's enough. I, I really have to challenge what you're saying in a way uh, about... You, there are no such things. There's an infinite way of what it feels like to be a person. But each of us carries a set of values of what we believe makes a good life. All right? In the authoritarian value, the good life is lived if you're obedient. In the democratic way, the good life is, is, is lived if you can be an individual. And to me, there needs to be a, a, a balance between being, again, and I make clear in the book, these are my values. 
So when I see somebody unhappy, I usually find, I don't try to impose it, but usually it's there. They want to be creative and an individual, and they want to be loved and loving. Right? And it's a conflict between those two values very often. What do I do for somebody else? What do I do for myself? So that guides my work. Right? Now, I try never to impose my values on somebody. I can't not live by my values. And when I see people suffering, it's very often because they're stuck in a story in which they have to be obedient to something or they're in rebellion, in per- permanent rebellion against the values that they were raised with. So mm. it's not simply I leave it and throw it up in the air and say, however they want to live is okay, because I don't believe that. I think there are better ways of living. And while I make clear it's my values, and I will not uh, force somebody ever to live according to my values, although that's not completely true, uh, I I raised three children. (laughs) While I never hit them, uh, I certainly saw behaviors that I thought were going to be destructive to them and others that I would push that they shouldn't exist because you can't live your life without a set of values, as you just said. Anyway, we're going to come to the end of this soon. Um, I only put this on for an hour, and I personally cannot, by self physically, spend more than an hour on the phone. Uh, I would love to do this again. So I can't thank you both enough for coming on. Um, I, I really can't. Uh, this is a, a pleasure for me. It's a joy for me to do, um, especially now that I don't have any much contact with the outside world. Uh, everybody has to wear a mask now here in Florida. And so I yeah, walk, same here in Spain. I take a walk every morning because I have plenty of space to walk. I'm in a, a in an enclosed development, a gated community. So I have a track that runs around about a mile and a half, you know, very pretty. But everybody now runs away from everybody and everybody's masked. It's so bizarre. It's so, so crazy. So uh, I, I love doing this. Uh, so I think I'm going to end the show now. Do you have any final comments, either of you? I'd love to hear that. Jim? Um, I would just, uh, Jim, why don't you go first? Well, I, I don't know that I really have final comments other than, um, yeah, I encourage everybody to, you know, learn about Zaz, uh, Zaz uh, because he really, uh, I think, uh, nails uh, the situation. Okay. And, and you? Yeah, I would, I, I would completely agree with that. And I would also add that um, if you're listening to this, it's probably because you're interested in these ideas or you're <laughs> Zaz curious, I guess you could say. And it's understandable that you would feel anxious about delving into his work and about having the, you know, veil uh, removed from your face to sh- to see that there is really no such thing as mental illness. But far from, you know, leaving you a broken shell and despondent, uh, it actually, um, at least in my case, it's rejuvenated me and it's uh, helped me live a better life and it's um, 
it's also helped me realize that once you really believe that you are in control over a lot more things than you thought you were, um, you know, that's enough to um, to chase away a lot of the blues that you used to have. So yeah, well, I think that's, that's I wisdom itself, Scott. I think that's terrific, and I agree. Uh, on the other hand, one of the things, uh, one of the reasons I do this show, not the only reason, but it is one, is I'd like to get people to read my book, which I think is a good mm-hmm. sequel to Zas. It doesn't replace Zas, and certainly I never would have been able to write my book or know what I know had I not read us and became familiar with the, the salient ideas of the myth of mental illness. So uh, I put that in. Anyway, oh, yeah, I, I think I think uh, yeah, I think your book is great, and uh, people should read it. Everybody should read it, and and I think people should read my book too. There's Viprexa papers. Well, by the way, I've been putting up ads. I don't know if you see them on Facebook for my book, and I quote your quote that you put in in uh, in Amazon. And if you click your name, up comes your book. Oh, thank you. I do that. Because I think your book, by the way, is an incredibly important book uh, in terms of the, the, what, the, the, the mass murder that the drug companies are doing and will do more of. Because the more people who believe this, these terrible bullshit ideas, that anxiety is not, for example, a normal human emotion to a situation uh, that I call a known unknown, that there's something to be known that could be threatening you, and you have to know what it is, but you don't know what it is. Uh, that And forces you to find out, takes you to certain kinds of truths. So it's important. Can I, to, can I, I'm sorry? Can I ask both of you a question? Can I ask sure. both of you a quick question? Have sure. you seen the movie Joker? Have either of you seen yes. the movie Joker with Joaquin Phoenix? Yes. Okay. Um, I wrote a review of this movie from a Zazian perspective. Um, It's in Spanish because it was published on Instituto Juan de Mariana's website. That's a a Spanish libertarian think tank. Um, But if you Google it, if you Google my name and you Google Joker, um, it'll come up. And the Google Translate into English is pretty good. And... I saw this as an excellent opportunity to communicate Zaz's ideas to the general public because yeah. the movie problem is though is so ex- yeah he was a mass mur- he was a terrible human being the Joker in the end he, he was, killed people but right but remember the reason why the audience understands why he does it because we yes. through the camera we've lived a crucial part of his life. And we understand yes. his motives. Um, yes. That doesn't There's a danger he has gotten. I'm going to end it on this. Okay. To explain all is to forgive all. And that's a danger. Right. So mm. you can, uh, it does a good job of explaining his rage. But then to justify mm. what he does, because you can explain it, is a bigger danger for all of us. Absolutely. All right. Listen, I'm going to say goodbye to you for now. Mm-hmm. I will be in touch, I hope, with both of you, and I thank you again. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to now shut down the show and make sure that I have it the way I want it. Otherwise, I'm going to bang my head against mm-hmm. the wall. And so I'm taking you mm-hmm. offline. Goodbye. 
and goodbye. Goodbye. And take care. You. you too.